Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast. I am your host, Stephen Lamarca, AMT's technology analyst, and I am here with Benjamin Moses, the director of technology for AMT. How are you doing today, Steve? That was so fun. <laughs> we Just totally switch. switched roles right there, man. That was nice. I guess you're in charge now. Uh, I wouldn't say all of that, but you know, how am I? So let me answer your question. How am I doing today? Yep. I'm doing very well today. I am tired. Yeah. Today was an exciting day. It was the second and final day of AMT's 2021 Tech Forum, um, which started Monday. We took a break Tuesday, which was smart because there's a lot of information. There was a lot of information to take in on Monday, and there was all even more information to take in today. But um, really fun time. Uh, we had some great panelists, or not panelists, but presenters. Yep. Uh, I had some awesome co-hosts, which is nothing out of the uh, ordinary. Um, but uh, yeah, the co-hosts, I'll even start with them. Um, Absolutely. Rebecca Kerfus, um, uh, Thomas uh, Fettelman. What is it? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Feldhausen. Feldhausen, that's it. I don't know why I wanted to say Fettelman, but uh, Thomas was great. They were all great. And uh, Kyle... uh, Salabi. Salabi, yeah. Those guys at an uh, Oak Ridge National Lab, they they were great. I could not have uh, done it without them. It was a really fun time. Uh, And yeah, naturally, I am pooped because it's it's now 2.30 in the afternoon, and we got going at uh, 9 a.m. And it was essentially, you know... Uh, a, a industry trade show from the comfort of my own home uh, and, you know, up early and mind racing all day. So right. naturally yeah. I am, I am tired. Yeah. It's funny but, when you uh, mentioned that hosting a, an event uh, can be mentally draining and we did it for uh, four hours. <laughs> yeah. Two, two and I didn't even have so, the hard part. I was yeah. just introducing people and like, you know, asking the, well, fielding the questions in between presentations, but it was, it was fun. There was a yep. great present, uh, presenters. It yeah. was an awesome time. Why don't we hit some of the highlights there? I feel like, uh, we should definitely let the audience know some of the highlights from the tech forum. Sure. Let me, uh, so let's look at the schedule first. Like what are my notable highlights? Uh, I know you've got three presenters that you want to touch on yep. and my three presenters, I'll start with, uh, on the first day, uh, it was a blast talking with Jason Jones, the co-founder and CEO of Hybrid Manufacturing Technologies. Absolutely. Um, it was really fun putting two faces to something that I've been talking about and have been referencing forever. Like I even told Jason once we were done on Monday, I was like, dude, I use your infographic literally all the time. The seven <laughs> well, families of additive yeah, manufacturing. It's not just his. He's on a committee that helps define the right yeah. right but they kind of have their little logo <laughs> sure. on the infographic okay. so i mean sure it might be by asme or whoever it was but they were working closely sure. with uh hybrid and hybrid may or may not have funded it but uh you i, I love that infographic it's really it, it, it's very informative go figure for an infographic uh, but jason jones it was cool getting to put a face to him and his company sure um and you know, in his presentation, I got to see what their actual product looks like. Right. I finally got to see what the, um, the the tool is that goes into the tool holder or that goes into the spindle on right. a conventional CNC machine, but allows a conventional CNC machine to do something that you could only do traditionally 
in a 3D printer. Right. Right. No, that was wild. I, I had I've heard of this before. Hybrid is nothing that new. Additive is certainly yeah. not new, um, but I had never seen it before, and I finally got to see it uh, through a screen. But yeah, seeing the actual integration and plus the diversity of heads. So the idea of having interchangeable heads for additive, uh, so it's not just the end mill, right? So you're changing, um, you know, an additive head that's in a tool holder. But he also has like right angle drives. He's got some deep. Uh, pocket so you could do internal surfaces external surfaces and then come back and machine so you know there was one question where if you're growing a large part and then you don't have line of sight anymore how would you do that and the idea of yeah. printing then machining then printing again i was like that's very simple but you wouldn't run you wouldn't have that idea until you tried until you had that problem and it was also really cool that like sure sure you think like you know okay it was the company that pioneered, or at least I think they pioneered uh, hybrid manufacturing. You right. know, the, the 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 marriage of both additive and subtractive manufacturing. Uh, so go figure. But it was really cool that they're not a one-trick pony, right? Obviously, right. but I got to see that they don't just have one type of printing head Correct. to go into a CNC machine. They've got multiple different types of multiple different families of additive manufacturing that they can adapt a conventional CNC to. And then they also have the tools for finishing. Um, Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the the laser hardening after you print a layer, uh, they had a tool specifically for that. That's cool. And like you said, the right angle stuff too. So the other uh, great pleasure of Jason's presentation was, um, you know, while it's a great topic and everybody has questions and everybody wants to talk about it, as I was watching that presentation, I was coming up with, as I was watching all the presentations, I was coming up with questions to ask the presenters. It seemed like every time I was like, oh, this is something I want to ask Jason. (laughs) Five seconds later, he answers it. It's like he was reading my mind. Just a fantastic presenter. And I really um, like how he was testing out some new technology. So uh, obviously it was a digital uh, conference. Uh, so instead of having just a presentation and your you know, yeah. camera on the side, his presentation was a camera with images of the presentation overlaid with his face. So I thought it was a very interesting way to present it. And of course, Jason has a face for camera work. Yes. So it was, it yes. worked out really well. So I, I thought that was very innovative um, of, you know, creating a new way to engage a digital audience of. And I haven't seen anybody means. use, I haven't seen anybody use Prezi for a presentation yeah. since, um, since uh, academia. Um, and even it still it was rare there, but yep. like, you know, we've been, people in industry have been using PowerPoint slideshows <laughs> forever yeah. now, maybe with some animation in between the slides, like yeah. a fade in and fade out. But uh, it was really nice seeing his, his really clean Prezi. Yeah. It was just really well done on his part. Um, my next one, uh, you know, our old colleague, Lu Zeng, <laughs> who's now over at machine metrics. Yep. Um, he's the lead data scientist over there. Yeah. And uh, I was like, Oh man, this one's going to be really thick and heavy and in the woods sure. with, uh, you know, the content he's covering, but it was fascinating. And also it was a breath of fresh air and kind of like a love letter to me <laughs> because, uh, you know, it was basically his entire presentation was totally physics based. Yeah. It was like, you don't need to, you don't need to add buy all of these sensors and all this extra hardware to pull extra data, data, data from your machine. Like, you can use simple physics and like 
equations that have been around for like hundreds of years now to calculate the data you're looking for based off of what the sensors you're already pulling yeah that that, that was really cool that that's a very good summation of the kind of presentation is using what you already have and applying what you know about physics so you know the applications or the scenarios that he kind of walked through were uh predicting a failure so there's either like a step change in like a signal that's already on a sensor that's already on the machine, or there's a pattern of uh, signals before uh, that failure occurs. And it's a matter of determining those patterns and recognizing those patterns. So getting to high frequency data was important. And there's a lot of little nuances that he hit on that that are very, very valuable. But also the idea that, you know, you don't need machine learning. You don't need artificial intelligence. You need some basic math and some (laughs) understanding of how statistics work (laughs) to get to, hey, this thing's changing uh, frequency of this of this uh, signal. There's going to be a failure. So I thought that was very intuitive, and it, it makes a lot of sense in manufacturing. It was it was like I want to say it was such like an an ivory tower kind of <laughs> boomer esque moment, but like it was really funny and 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 and, and insightful because he was just like, you don't need all like you said, you don't need all this machine learning and AI. Sure. You know, you can get all the answers you're looking for with you know good old math and science <laughs> yeah yeah to be fair i mean everything has and maybe a really fast internet connection <laughs> yeah. yeah that's fair so that was good i mean it was a good kickoff of hey let's do a lot more with what we have right and then today you know we had some awesome presentations today i'll let you uh uh bring up uh jan de nice yeah. from lockheed yeah. martin we love that guy yeah and he loves us he- but uh <laughs> i'll uh Right after him, we had the um, uh, John Berg, the yep. founder of Aceta. Yeah. Um, and it, it was another breath of fresh air having him present because, you know, he's been in audit. He warned us in advance. He was like, yeah, you know, this presentation is only going to be like 20 minutes. You know, I don't I don't have that much to talk about. But like what he like the knowledge bombs that he dropped on us right. was like, you know, y- you can be. Uh, uh, cut. You can have a cutting edge technology by taking a bunch of you know traditional technologies in simple tasks and just doing them right. Yeah, you know it's it's the sum of a bunch of small tasks executed perfectly is the equivalent of implementing the latest and greatest right. of what like cutting edge uh, uh, state of the art technology has to offer, and yeah. that was really fun. Yeah, I, I do like his talk of. You know, we've been uh, humble, dude. Eyeing subtractive manufacturing through robotic arms. Uh, Oak Ridge did the did the uh, uh, an, an experiment of the opposite, right? They added uh, additive heads to robotic arms, and you know, the non-contact or low-contact stuff, robots do great. But what happens if you have to start import, imparting cutting forces? So yes. they're drilling into this hardened uh, construction steel, and the one of the questions at the end is, um, you know, how accurate or how repeatable? And obviously, it's uh, what kind of tolerances you can maintain and you know yes he, he responded very intelligently in that you know what is actually needed you know we have this construction beam that needs holes it can probably be off an eighth of an inch so you, all that tolerance can be used in the hole and how it's formed and uh, and they're using some machine vision also to make sure they're, they're right. locating and make sure everything is in the correct place so it's a very advanced application of it but it's a very uh, fundamental understanding of what is actually needed in the application space. So that right. was and, a good and, combination. And there was a, the, the, the discussion afterwards kind of like 
um, compared and contrasted, you know, what he was doing with an automation cell, a yeah. robot automation cell to what can already be done with a really fancy multi-axis, multi-spindle, yeah. multitasking CNC machine. Um, but uh, what was cool about that was like, you can have the most advanced CNC machine, yeah. like machining center right. in the world, but your part can still be screwed up <laughs> if you have to, if you have to fixture it more than once. Right. right. And if that fixturing is done by a human being, that doesn't do it perfectly and can't measure it perfectly in that confined space and semi-dangerous environment within a machine tool enclosure, then the parts may as well be scrapped. Yeah. You know, sure. It can, the, the CNC machine itself can do a perfect job right. at doing that material removal. But what was cool about, you know, his automation cell was like, if you let, sure, a robot isn't as rigid as a CNC machine, but if you have to refixture, if you let the refixturing and all of the other processes be done by a robot and there's no human intervention right. other than, you know, the idiot standing behind the controller, <laughs> not idiot, but, you know, the technician standing behind the controller, then everything's going to be done infinitely more consistent. Right. And when you have more consistency, you have higher quality. When you have higher quality, you have less scrap and you have less downtime. And then you're all of a sudden by doing just doing simple tasks right yep. you're moving at four times the speed of everybody else and the idea of the simple tax also i mean yeah you when you're cutting that beam obviously you could have like a bridge bell or something like that where you can have tons of space right. but you know the the idea of excess technology was brought up too so the idea of yeah the smallest motor you could probably could put on is like this you know, 20 horsepower motor when you actually need 10 and you've got yeah. all the additional structure that's needed to support to achieve an accuracy, which you don't need also. So it's, it's a very interesting balance of technology that you want versus technology that's available. Um, right. And the opportunity, right? So yeah, you could flip the, uh, like that robotic arm. You could flip that robotic arm to do something else later on, right? You could yeah. change that head. They had interchangeable heads on it too. So I at the end of the day, you still bought a, a Fanuc robot arm. You can Correct. take it right. off the track and yeah. use it for whatever else you want. Yeah. But but to your point, what you're what was really cool, and not just for John Berg's presentation, but the entire tech form. You know, we get lost easily in like the latest and greatest technology, and we go back to traditional technologies quite often. Um, but, you know, with all this, you know, machine learning and AI and advanced automation techniques and machine vision, stuff like that, you know, it's cool in that the recurring theme amongst almost all of the presenters in their presentations in this tech forum was, guys, there is such thing as too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, exactly. Like, only use what you need. What you need. Yeah, that was a very good takeaway overall. It was lean technology. <laughs> Uh, getting back to uh, Yonder Nice uh, from Lockheed, the uh, nice guy. They talked about the digital twin. So the idea of a 3D or a uh, electronic representation of something physical is basically the foundation of the digital. And I think that was the big takeaway, right? So he, he, we started understanding the separation of I've got a CAD model. Is that just a digital twin? It's not a digital twin yeah. until you have a physical representation of that. And th and I think that's where right. uh, the the disconnect is if I have a, a CAD model of an airplane, they're labeling, it's not a digital twin. They're labeling it as a digital prototype, which is completely fair. Yeah, you haven't made the airplane yet, so you have no idea what it 
what it actually looks like in, in real space. And, you know, there's a ISO uh, group working on it uh, to help standardize uh, use cases. We wrote an article about the kind of the different scenarios of connecting your 3D representation or your digital representation with the physical space. And that's where marrying those data points up is kind of interesting. So that was a very interesting look of where Lockheed was headed and, and you know, how you're storing the data came actually a very interesting discussion at the very end because Jan had some very, very strong opinions of where you want to store <laughs> this did. physical data, right? So if I measure the part, do I want to store in the PLM system? Do I want to store in the MES system? Where do I want to store this <laughs> massive amount of data? And he had- And I believe strong... Jan said no. <laughs> he said no to everything. He said, don't uh, don't put it into these systems because I think the key, the one thing I took away from that is they they have their own life cycle. Right, so the PLM system, so how you're storing your CAD data has your product management, your versioning, that has its own uh, ecosystem or you know its own life cycle. The MES system is has its own uh, desire, needs, or uh, controls for that data set. The data that you're capturing has a different set of needs. So you're, if it's a quality data, that has its own life cycle. So if they're doing like flight critical hardware, which obviously Lockheed is. You know, you may be required to store that quality data for the entire life of that aircraft, which could be 30, 40 years. So collecting your um, your digital twin data or your 3D or your physical data, you know, storing that into separate databases and then doing associations to um, your CAD systems or your digital data is the approach I think Jan was looking for is that don't try and cram into your existing systems. Don't, they just don't work. And the example he had was, um, you know, how you store apples versus like how you store like beer. He used oranges, but I think in more relevant cases, apples versus beer. Yeah, you could theoretically force to put in one place, but they're going to behave differently. One's going to spoil faster than the other. But if they have their own correct container, their life will be much more, uh, much more appreciated. So I thought it was a good talk from Lockheed and where they're headed on the digital twin. Who else uh, did you like? Um, airproofing. Uh, Fanic Other was than talk- all of them. <laughs> it, it, it's hard. You know, when you, when you have more than one kid, it's hard to have a favorite, but everyone has a favorite. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, the other one I locked away was airproofing. So the idea of kind of validating that, hey, this thing is correct. So uh, Fanic, uh, uh, Josh, person gave a talk on airproofing versus inspection. So you inspect some, you verify yes. something that, you made it to what you promised. Basically, that's the short of inspection, right? Did you did you make it to the print? Uh, airproofing is a little bit, a little bit of a kind of blurred line between the two, where you want to make sure that you did something correct before it moves on the next step, right? So, inspection versus airproofing, they're slightly different in this particular talk, where you wanted to make sure that, say, the orientation of a specific widget was correct in the processing line, or the um, widget is on the assembly before it moves to the next processing, next step in the process. He he wanted to mitigate the risk of accumulating scrap cost as you built up your manufacturing assembly. Uh, so that was very interesting talk of how you build a uh, AI al- artificial intelligence algorithm using machine vision uh, using their built-in tools. And I thought it was very interesting that they have the user interface to say, yes, this widget is in the correct orientation, take a picture of it and tag it as yes or correct. Also teach it, hey, this thing on the backside, these are wrong. If you see this, this is wrong. So, you know, 
it, he kind of glossed over some of the statistics involved with that, you know, the confidence intervals and how how many data points you need to train the model. Uh, but I thought it was a very interesting approach on where that data is stored and how quickly it is to trade the model in, you know, kind of bare minimum and kind of the process to monitor the initial stages of it. So if you've got like 10 data points, the machine will tell you how, how confident it is on that calculation after showing the model. So the operator can keep watching the confidence and if it's high enough, he could forget it at some point, but obviously it's low enough, then the human has to get uh, intervened. So I thought it was a really interesting talk on error proofing uh, from uh, Yeah, Josh. error proofing was cool. I was not yet, uh, well, I mean, I was uh, aware of error proofing, but I wasn't, wouldn't say I was comfortable with the concept of right. it, but that was, that was nice. That was something totally new for me yeah. that wasn't necessarily new before yeah. the conference. So yep. <laughs> it was good getting to learn it. Yep. Absolutely. And Steve, uh, so we recorded everything and, uh, uh, we plan to publish all the presentations and videos afterwards. So, uh, for those that haven't, uh, did get a chance to, uh, hear that, we'll give you a, a way to uh, find out, um, how to catch up on these presentations, uh, at the end of the podcast. Let's get to some articles, man. All right. Um, my first article, let me cue it up. I did this last night. I found this awesome article from TechCrunch, actually. Um, and it was news that Sennheiser, one of my favorite uh, companies as an audiophile, sure. is partner partnering with Formlabs, cool. one of my favorite companies <laughs> in additive manufacturing. I mean, you can't, you gotta love them all, but uh, I. I have a special connection with Forum Labs because I visited them in Southie. I'm just kidding. They're not in Southie. They're in Cambridge, Mass. <laughs> They'll kill me if I keep saying that. Um, but uh, it was fun visiting them. But what's really cool is, you know, Sennheiser is partnering with Forum Labs to uh, use their additive manufacturing technology, their 3D printing technology, specifically their um, VET photopolymerization technology. Okay. Um, to produce a perfect custom fit for their customers. Okay, cool. So, and and this honestly isn't new, sure. other than the 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 partnership between Sennheiser right. and um, Form Labs is new, but small other smaller and much more expensive. I won't necessarily say premium because honestly, Sennheiser's almost as premium as it gets right. when it comes to uh, audio technology, both for professional and personal. Yep. Um, but uh, what's, what's let me get into why it's not that new is um, there's a special type of headphone, really earphone called an IEM, an in-ear monitor. Yeah. And professional IEMs are perfectly fit for, the customer, whoever's right. buying them. And the customers are typically uh, musicians. Sure. Um, and the that's where you, you, you kind of hints at that in the term monitor. You know, they're not called uh, headphones. They're called monitors. Right. Like when you, the, the main difference, like when you're at least shopping around for a good set of headphones is if they're called headphones by the company or by the website you're buying it from or whoever, uh, if it's called headphones, it's customer grade stuff. Yes. But if it's called monitors, and this is this is a really weak rule of thumb that probably doesn't hold true anymore. But if it's called monitors, that's studio quality stuff that will give you the most accurate 
playback of whatever it is that you're listening to. And to get into the weeds a little bit more about that, um, I promise I won't be long, is a lot of headphones, a lot of consumer grade headphones are made to sound a little bit more bright and a little bit more exciting uh, than, you know, the actual, a perfectly accurate playback or recording of, or perfectly executed playback of whatever the master recording was of that musical artist. Um, But anyway, musicians use IEMs while they're on stage. So they kind of double as earplugs. So when you're at a concert or or when a musician is playing at a concert and the volume's cranked up way loud and they're standing next to speakers and breaking guitars over amplifiers, (laughs) you know, they're not blowing their eardrums out because it's plugged their ears. But at the same time, they can still hear exactly what they're playing because those headphones, those monitors are playing to them. Now, that's typically really expensive technology an example of a company that makes in-ear monitors for professionals is ultimate ears which is a small company that was recently bought out by a big company i want to say a few years ago they were bought out by logitech Mm -hmm. but ultimate ears has been uh they started with sending the customer like if a customer a customer would call them up be like hey i want a pair of your iems and they'd be like all right uh give us money and we're going to send you a mold kit. You're going to shove this stuff in your yeah. ear yep. and let it sit and dry and then send it back to us. And then in a couple of weeks, like six weeks, we'll send you a pair of <laughs> IEMs that fit your ears perfectly. It's been molding traditionally. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd send back, the customer would send back the, the mold of their ear. The company like Ultimate Ears would take that mold, recreate an IEM, Hand, a lot of that was handmade right, stuff. Right. Um, then later, um, like I want to say less than five, ten years ago, uh, Logitech owning Ultimate Ears, they started uh, and st- because you know it's very customer based, and when customers are spending a lot of money on a quality product, they also want comfort too. Sure. You know, because high quality is often seen as a luxury good in some cases and luxury good people who buy luxury goods want maximum comfort and shoving a big old glob of whatever (laughs) to get a mold of your ears, not comfortable. Right. So what ultimate ears did was take a bunch of pictures of your ear. Mm -hmm. We can get enough measurements based off of that alone with our fancy, you know, picture scanning technology. And then over here we'll 3d print it. Yep. And then we'll send you back again in, you know, four to six weeks, a couple of weeks. Problem with that was, um, sure, the picture quality or the, the picture scanning works great and sure. the 3D printing technology is there and works great. But 3D printing and additive manufacturing in general at the time was still re- relatively uh, low quality in terms of surface finish. Sure. So even though you were skipping the discomfort of producing those IEMs um, by using you know, taking a picture or a couple pictures instead, you still had um, the step of having to do a lot of hand finishing right. to get the product right. right. Um, reason why Sennheiser has finally got into this, uh, into this niche market of the audiophile world and is doing it with uh, form labs is because using photo that uh, photo polymerization is probably the easiest way at least using with using resins sure. is the easiest way to get a perfectly smooth 
uh, right. surface finish on your print. And that means less uh, hand finishing right. at the, to, to finish up the, the, the product and you get to turn it around to customers who are spending a lot of money <laughs> and probably want their product sure. as quickly as possible. And so it's, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. And like I said, this is nothing new in terms of technology, but it's nice to see uh, two companies. I'm very heavily emotion, uh, emotionally invested in yep. uh, having a nice partnership and, if everything goes right, I might actually be able to afford some. <laughs> you know, I really like the idea of buying pro-consumer grade stuff. So like Sennheiser, I've loved them. I've used them uh, professionally uh, for quite a while. Uh, in a lot of cases, I end up using Sure because they're very similar, but a little less expensive. Uh, sure really? Um, I feel like Sure is more expensive. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> I don't um, know, man. I can show you a pair of headphones that I would love to have from Sure that uh, I'm not spending $1,000 on headphones <laughs> anytime soon. Sure. Uh, and Sennheiser's uh, broadened their, um, so say, their reach. Now they're pr- producing like pro-consumer su- pro grade equipment. And the idea of like customized uh, uh, pro-consumer grade equipment is very fascinating to me. And the fact, they could do that large scale. Um, it was very interesting and enough to put their name behind. So a lot of their say new products are, are fairly mature when they come out, right? There is a, like a first run where you're like, oh, it's the first one. There could be failures. Sennheiser stuff, when their first run comes out, it's, it's robust, right? So it's, yeah. it's very interesting to see uh, how popular this is and paves the way for uh, uh, this type of product in the future. What, do you have any custom stuff? What, what's something custom that you own? I mean, I've got custom tailored like suits and and, and like oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you did buy uh, jackets uh, and stuff. But yeah. I know what what do I do? I have anything custom for other than tailoring? Not really. Yeah. And this is, you know, um, I actually when I was uh, much younger, my dad got me like my first set of golf clubs, and cool. I'm terrible at golf, <laughs> and. Uh, the the actual golf clubs actually had custom molded uh, grips on sure. them. Didn't do any good. I mean, <laughs> That's not gonna help you. <laughs> you know, man, I'm so bad, but you know, he, he just wanted me to be yeah. athletic, and he got this. <laughs> Parents, man, they they want uh, what they had. Uh, well, the article I've got is from Clean Technica. It's an interesting um, uh, article on kind of the ecosystem of materials. So, I've been keeping an eye on end of life for a lot of products what happens when a car is done right you take it to the junkyard they separate it some of it gets recycled like batteries is a new thing for me what happens when all these pure ev yes. vehicles when their end of life occurs what do we do with this all this caustic material that's in batteries um and this article is talking about uh, wind turbines i'm a big fan of renewable energy if it can be done uh at scale uh wind turbines are interesting to me because there's a lot of like open fields in in the u.s the u.s is massive i forget how big the u.s is and there's a lot of places where you know a 500 foot tall wind turbine makes a lot of sense yeah i live in a place where that doesn't make any sense so i'm really interested how how you know how to get renewable energy in in the setting in like an urban setting uh but so if you're able to, you know, deploy in like a uh, a field or a farm of wind turbines, it makes a lot of sense to have these big turbines. Um, and the article talks about the composites used to make these turbines. How once they get to end of life, a big portion of that can be recycled, be reused, like uh, eighty-five to ninety percent 
the article quotes uh, can be used for uh, re- can be recycled. And that's it. It's I think that's the entire uh, system. So the base, the the blades, or not the blades actually, the generator. Um, the blades are very interesting. There's a lot of composites in the blades themselves, um, and those that's the one key element that they've been struggling to um, recycle or reuse in the future. Uh, so the article talks about um, there is a multi-company project that they're finding ways to recycle the composite blades themselves. I find that yeah. very interesting because we, you know, uh, on the tech forum we talked, we heard a talk about uh, 3D printing composites. So what happens at the end of life of a composite? I'm assuming it just goes right in the junkyard or uh, the resin and the carbon. I don't know what you could do with that yeah. afterwards. So this multi, this project um, being led by these, uh, I think it's 10 companies, uh, they're developing a consortium to figure out what to do with these uh, carbon blade or uh, excuse me, composite blades. And right now they have three ideas, right? The first is um, looking a way to shred the blades. Once you have it shredded, then you can use it back in the manufacturing process, you know, as like a mulch material if you needed to. I've seen mulch right. uh, carbon fiber before, and that's that's an interesting application. Oh, wow. uh, the second is um, after you have it shredded, using that in concrete, reinforcing the concrete through uh, the composite. Whoa. So that was pretty fascinating. Uh, and then finally, using the composites, again, just recycling, just using that material. Uh, they mentioned some type of process to reintegrate that um, broken down uh, composite into new parts. So that is a very interesting look that, you know, you say, okay, wind turbines, how big is our big wind type? But that's a lot of material if you look at the blades themselves on these massive turbines. So developing the, closing the loop on, you know, end of life for these um, renewable energy sources is very interesting. And I think uh, a lot more emphasis will be put on that, especially when you look at the consumer uh, appetite for understanding that, things are a little more green, a little more um, uh, environmental friendly. So that was yeah. a very interesting look. And, you know, the impact of manufacturing is you're going to have to be processing these parts in different ways at the end of life, right? So you're gonna, probably going to have to process uh, carbon shredded uh, composites at some point or figuring out how to reuse this different material in your process, which may not be a huge impact, but at some point it's going to reach the right. ecosystem. So. And it's just like, I think it's worth mentioning and, and, and potentially reiterating that like you know every now and then i hear the dumb argument like about like oh wind turbines are bad because you know you 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 can't recycle them once they go bad like it's just it just goes into a landfill it's a lot of waste when it's simply not true you you think about like the components that make up a wind turbine there's nothing in a wind turbine that can't be reused right it's just a big electric motor uh on top of a big dumb shaft (laughs) It's like the only thing that's difficult in terms of recycling is just that it's a lot yeah. of material. Yeah. yeah. You know, it doesn't matter like how green a car is versus like, you know, a diesel truck. At the end of the day, a diesel truck has a lot more material. It's just a lot right. more material. I don't want to get into like, you know, the batteries. Like I understand sure. the argument that like, you know, uh, batteries and EVs are are wasteful and right, that like right. you know we we haven't found a way to recycle battery technology yet um at least not a good one or at least uh find a recyclable material that makes a good battery sure. um but like you know it's just it's it's just it's so it, it's almost as dumb as the, the the people who also make the argument that wind turbines are bad because they slow down the rotation of the earth <laughs> I've legitimately heard that from somebody I know before. And I'm wow. like, 
<laughs> I, I I just got dumber. <laughs> I feel bad for you, Steve. I'll cut that person out of my life. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of which, a, a side tangent. I'm really uh, the car that I have is a it's a hybrid, so it's got a battery and internal combustion. And I'm really happy for that technology. I think it's matured a long way, and you know I feel like going pure one way or the other. It it's kind of a mistake. I feel like you're missing out on a lot of opportunity there. So. The, the combination between the two, I feel like, is a winning combo. But also, uh, Porsche said, you know, batteries aren't necessarily the future. We can develop a synthetic fuel that significantly reduces yes. emissions where, eh, we can keep internal combustions around forever. We just need to switch fuels. They used to use the same ecosystem because you can transport around, just make make this fuel that doesn't uh, uh, contaminate the earth. So, a lot of, right. uh, lot of uh, eco-friendly talk. Yeah, a lot of... Especially, you know, they definitely want to keep internal combustion (laughs) engines around, not because, you know, their name was made off of producing sports cars, but just because they just invested a lot of money, as we talked about last uh, podcast. I think we talked about this last podcast with their 3D printed pistons. Yeah. Yeah. And then they were like, yeah, these 3D printed pistons, they're not going to be around at least for the next 10 years. And it's like, (laughs) dude, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles might not be around for the next 10 years. So. You, you better hope that internal combustion stays around or you find some uh, renewable combustion fuel. Yeah. I can see the guy um, that uh, is pushing that project, like sweating underneath his collar. He's like, please stick right. around. <laughs> but before we move on to the next article, I think it's worth mentioning too that, uh, you know, I think one of the big problems with batteries is a similar problem that we're seeing with, you know, additive. Sure. Uh, and it's that we just need more standards. Sure. You know, sure. We get hung up on things like, you know, you think about conventional batteries, like double A's and triple A's and D batteries and C batteries. When was the last time you like changed those types of batteries in anything? Probably not for a while. I don't know what you do with batteries, but probably not for a while. But like, you know, and, and that I think that kind of puts a bad taste in some people's mouth. But you have to remember those are disposable batteries. Sure. And we're now finally at this elevated level of thought and education that batteries are something that are not to be disposable. Right, we should right. not be fiddling right. with disposable batteries right. because they, they can't go anywhere. Yep. We need to focus on, you know, maximum life rechargeable batteries. Right. And the one thing that old conventional batteries like double A's and triple A's <laughs> have is that they're standardized. Sure. You know, it's a standard size. Like you should be able to, EVs would have taken off way more like Tesla's and Nissan Leafs and Chevy Volts sure. and pre I are already <laughs> really popular right. on us roads, but they would be even more so popular And the Prius. If the latest Prius might not even be a hybrid, it might even be an electric vehicle. If battery standards were taken more seriously, sure. if a high, if an electric vehicle could pull into a shell or an Exxon station and instead of plugging into some dumb Tesla supercharger, <laughs> like to hell with charging it. Let's, let's, change let's the like, like, like pull the car over like a bay. Sure. You know, the old battery or the decharge discharged battery is dropped out of the vehicle. An automated system moves a fresh battery underneath it and installs a freshly charged battery. Sure. That way there's no ownership over the battery. You may have to charge like the refueling cost might be like the rental for the battery, <laughs> but uh, it, it's easy to swap out because sure. then you wouldn't have to worry about this problem with uh, 
taking an hour to charge your car when, <laughs> yeah. you know, a gas car can refuel in less than a minute. There's a company, I did read that there was a company in China that was trying to do that with all their, uh, all the local indigenous um, uh, electric vehicles there. That didn't pan out too well for that company. <laughs> it's, but uh, I, 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 I understand the problem statement though, because it, it, getting over the hurdle of uh, trying to charge something quickly and, you know, having a non-proprietary solution and I think yeah. that's one of the, the business models that they first pushed, right, is having their own solution so then they could sell their batteries or, you know, uh, have their own ecosystem for charging and stuff. So I'm not the, saying that there can't be like a different brand of battery, but they should all there should be the automotive equivalent of a double A. Yeah. You know, it, and I it's wish. a crime that it's not. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in the, the, the who's guilty is probably big oil, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> That's some drama, Steve. <laughs> All right, man. I think uh, we covered quite a bit of material today. So, uh, how can they find more info about us? But most importantly, if they missed the tech forum today, how can they uh, find out um, the info from, about the tech forum? All right. As always, you can learn more about us from by going to uh, www. Or you can nobody uses www. <laughs> Just and go to amtnews.org and slash subscribe if you want to be continually updated with what we have to offer both you know with podcast releases episode releases and uh weekly tech report releases but for those that are already subscribed or will go to subscribe to amtnews.org uh, um if you missed the tech forum for whatever reason you weren't able to sh be there or you didn't straight up didn't know about it if you're subscribed to amtnews.org, we will make sure that you get the notification when the recording of the AMT Tech Forum is available. So you'll at least get to catch up on it. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. That was awesome. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. Have Bye, a good everybody. one, everybody.